Hey, years ago, an author named Leslie Flynn wrote a book titled, Great Church Fights. He documented cases of just how contentious and hostile church members can become. Hey, ask any pastor who's been around the block a time or two, and he'll tell you that ministry is a contact sport. It's sad when the church becomes a cage fight. And yet Titus, not just Leslie Flynn, could have written a book titled Great Church Fights. He was sent by Paul to pastor an ornery bunch of people, an ornery church on the island of Crete. In describing the Cretans in chapter 1 verse 12, Paul actually quotes a local author who characterized his own people as, and I quote, always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Not very flattering, huh? And Titus had been asked to pastor the church at Crete. I mean, obviously, a church full of very cranky people. Here's the question that prompted Paul's letter to Titus. How do you oversee rambunctious folk? The book of Titus expresses one certainty. To deal with difficult people, strong leadership is essential. And in these three chapters, Paul condenses the instructions that he communicated previously in his first letter to Timothy. He provides Titus a crash course in effective spiritual leadership. Verse 1 is the author's introduction. Paul, a bondservant of God. Slavery in Israel was used to pay off a person's debts. And often a slave who served a kind and a benevolent master ended up living a better life in his master's house than he could ever achieve on his own. In response, these freed slaves would forego their liberty to remain a servant in their master's house. Exodus chapter 21 tells us that the slave would go to the door of his master's house and there before the city magistrates, a sharp awl was driven through the lobe of his ear into the door of the house. He was pinned to his master's house. And that pierced ear forever identified the man as a bondservant as Paul says here in verse 1, or a love slave. This is what Paul calls himself, a bondservant or a love slave of Jesus Christ. You see, at first he came to Christ because he owed the Lord an enormous debt that he could never pay. Jesus paid it for him. But the longer he served, the more he realized that he could do far better in God's house than he could ever do on his own. And so Paul was pinned to the door of his kind, benevolent master. What about you? Are you a bondservant of Jesus Christ? I am. Well, Paul was also an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word apostle means sent out one. Paul was sent by God to share the good news of Jesus. And he did so according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. This term, the elect, I mean, this refers to the hand-picked of God. Those that God has chosen. But evidently, according to this verse, they still need to have faith. You see, salvation is God's choice and our choice. Sometimes you might wonder how those two ideas reconcile. But the Bible detects no contradiction. And here Paul defines what real faith looks like. It's a sincere and serious acknowledgement 
of the truth. That's faith. An acknowledgement of the truth. Notice too that faith produces godliness. It's true. The grace that saves us is the grace that changes us. The New Testament knows nothing of proclamation with no transformation. Well, verse 2 tells us our faith is in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested His Word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God, our Savior. Notice here, we're told something that God cannot do. He cannot lie. A study I recommend to you is to go through the Bible and create a list of all the things that God can't do. You'll find a few. James 1 verse 13 tells us that God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He, tempt, he, he Himself tempt anyone. 2 Timothy 2 verse 13 tells us that God cannot deny Himself. He can't violate His Word. There are some acts that God can't do, and one is to lie. That's why you can always take God's Word to the bank. What God promises, He is faithful to perform. Well, that's his introduction. Paul addresses this letter to Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now again, to the churches, Paul extends grace and peace. But whenever he writes a letter to a pastor, he always adds mercy. And why? Because pastors need lots and lots of mercy. I mean, just look at these guys tonight. Lord, have mercy. And Paul addresses Titus as a son in the faith, just as he did Timothy. I mean, Paul was a spiritual father to Titus, a mentor. They knew each other for over 20 years. You know, Paul and Titus met on Paul's first missionary journey in Galatia. Titus was a Gentile, and he returned to Jerusalem with Paul. And when he entered the temple, he became the flashpoint for Paul's confrontation with the Judaizers. The Jews tried to force Titus to be circumcised, but Paul refused to buckle. Paul knew that do's and don'ts, that good works and rituals have nothing to do with our right standing with God. It's all the result of grace. God accepted Titus through faith in Christ alone. And so did Paul. Reminds me of an old joke. All my jokes are old. What's a Grecian urn? Well, you're thinking of an urn. A vase, you know, this big jar. And then I counter, oh, about $10 an hour. That is old. But Titus's salvation is no joke. What did this Grecian urn? Definitely not a right standing with God. You can't earn that on your own. Righteousness comes by faith through grace. Well, Titus continued to minister with Paul over the years. Along with Timothy, Titus became one of Paul's chief troubleshooters. Titus and Timothy were Paul's messengers to the churches. Titus was with Paul after his appeal to Caesar Nero on the voyage from Caesarea to Rome. And when Paul's ship stopped off, or stopped off at the island of Crete, a little southeast of Greece, Titus stayed there to minister to the church. During Paul's second imprisonment, we know that Titus went on and joined Paul there in Rome 
For a time, he even ministered in Dalmatia. But eventually, Titus returned to the island of Crete. It's interesting, the church historian Eusebius tells us that Titus pastored the Cretan church even into old age. Apparently, it's possible to even grow fond of difficult people. Verse 5 reminds Titus of his purpose, why he stayed in Crete. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking. I'm sure you realize that there is no such thing as a perfect church. And by all means, if you find one, please don't join it. You'll ruin it. Every church has things that are lacking. We all have our shortcomings and we have our deficiencies. And it's the pastor's job to constantly be taking spiritual inventory. You know, when folks come up and inform me of some deficiency in our church, usually I'm one step ahead. I agree. I'm always looking for chinks in the armor. A pastor and an elder's job is to shore up the weaknesses while he's building up our strengths. Verse 5 adds to Titus' job description. He's to appoint elders in every city as I commanded you, Paul tells him. You remember from Acts chapter 6, the deacons were selected by the people of the church, but the elders were always chosen by the existing leadership. This is what Paul did back in Galatia in Acts 14, verse 23. And he's what, it's what he tells Titus to do there in the church at Crete. And in the next few verses, Paul lists the qualifications for a pastor or an elder. You'll notice that this list is similar to 1 Timothy chapter 3, proving that God's qualification for leaders is the same in all churches. Timothy, remember, he pastored an urban church there in the big city of Ephesus, whereas Titus pastored on a remote rural island called Crete. And yet leaders in both locations should be of the same stuff. Qualifications begin in verse 6. If a man is blameless. In other words, if there's nothing hanging over his head, if there's no outstanding warrants for his arrest, It's not that he's sinless, mind you, but he's owned his errors. He's made amends. He's tried to repair any damage that he's done. This is what it means to be blameless. He's also the husband of one wife, or literally a one-woman man. In other words, he doesn't have eyes for the sisters. His eyes, his heart are loyal to the Lord. Having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination. Not that the pastor's kids are perfect. But neither are they out of control and running wild. The pastor is not afraid to discipline his kids for acts of rebellion. And then verse 7, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God. A church leader needs to realize that the church belongs to Jesus. That we're just stewards or caretakers, custodians you could call us. The church is God's church. Once a salesman, he came to town looking for the local church of God. He asked one of the residents if he knew the location of the church. The man answered him. He said, well, there's a church on Main Street, but it belongs to a couple of rich cats that keep it afloat. Yeah, and then there's a church over on Maple, but it belongs to that stubborn old grunt who runs the show. And yeah, there's a church down there on Elm Street, but it belongs to the family that founded it. 
No, I don't think there's any church in this town that belongs to God. Isn't that sad? When an elder or when a pastor acts as if they own the church, this is a huge problem. Church leadership exists to represent God, to carry out His intentions. The church belongs to God. Qualifications continue, not self-willed. In other words, you don't want a leader with some personal agenda. Not quick-tempered. A church leader needs patience. And why? Because people need patience. Not given to wine. As a believer, it's your liberty to drink alcohol as long as it doesn't cause you or your neighbor or your brother to stumble. But as a leader, a leader is a person who's willing to give up some legitimate rights for the greater good of the body of Christ. It's the privilege, it's a great privilege to be a leader in the body of Christ. I, I consider it one of the greatest privileges of my life. But I also know that with that privilege comes responsibility. You see, the men at the helm, they make important decisions in the spur of the moment. And they can't afford a cloudy judgment. Admittedly, opinions differ on whether the phrase not given to wine requires total abstinence or extreme caution. But there is no doubt that it's intended to limit the elder's use of alcohol and to warn him of its dangers. It's a foolish person who ignores these warnings. Here at Calvary Chapel, Stone Mountain, we've chosen to embrace the spirit of this phrase and we require all of our pastors and elders to forego their liberty to drink for the sake of the ministry. Not violent. You don't want your elders to be violent. I mean, you don't want a fisticuffs to break out at the elders' meeting. And since the elders are handling the church finances, not greedy for money also applies. But hospitable. This is what an elder should be. Willing to open his heart in his home to newcomers. To be hospitable to new folks. A lover of what is good. That's, that's a great definition for a leader in the church. Lovers of what is good. Sober-minded. This should be a level-headed man. And just. Should be fair in how he treats people. And then holy. Oh, this is a great qualification for a leader in the church. He needs to be a holy person. The term means to be set apart or to be dedicated to God. And here's how you spot holiness. Is a man willing to give stuff up to spend time with God or to be more accessible for service or to be a better witness for Christ? A holy man is constantly moving away from the world and toward a closer walk and witness for Jesus. What is the momentum of the man's life? An elder should also be self-controlled holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. An elder should be both able and willing to confront the enemies of sound doctrine. In other words, he's not afraid to go toe-to-toe with the problem child in the church. Apparently, Pastor Titus, he needed some help. I mean, it wasn't good that he was the only person willing to take a stand. Titus needed other men around him who were sound in their doctrine and who were not afraid of confrontation. Every pastor needs those kind of men. Verse 10, For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers. Now, Here's one of the biggest blights in any church. One of the things that can 
short-circuit and undermine a church's ministry, and that's insubordination. And it's interesting. Insubordination takes two forms. Implicit and explicit. If you entertain criticism of the church or of the pastor, oh, I'm, I'm just trying to serve as their sounding board. If that's the approach you take, but if you never sound back that the criticism is wrong or it's uninformed, or it's unfair, you're giving implicit approval to what's being said. I mean, you've become a party to the rebellion without knowing it. Idle talk is often just as dangerous as outright lies and deception. You know, I read recently, for a virus to remain in your body, it has to have a host cell. It takes root in that host cell. And that cell provides it with shelter and with nourishment. And from there it begins to spread. And the same is true with a bad attitude in the church. It too finds a host cell. A person or a persons who may not necessarily agree with the attitude, but they tolerate it. They listen to it. They welcome it. And without realizing it, the host cell provides shelter and nourishment for the bad attitude to grow and to spread. This is why Paul tells Titus that idle talkers and deceivers are also forms of insubordination. Verse 10 tells us that the source of the problems in the Cretan church were coming from, or especially from, those of the circumcision. Jewish traditionalists and legalists were undermining God's grace in the lives of God's people. Paul tells Titus in verse 11, their mouths must be stopped. That's putting it pretty blunt. You see, a leader in the body of Christ can't be afraid of confrontation. Here's what I've discovered. These problems don't just disappear on their own. When a church member becomes contentious, the men in charge need to either steer him back or kick him out. But you can't tolerate it. Difficult people have to be discipled or disciplined. Paul tells Titus, their mouths must be stopped. Paul says, if allowed, the legalist will subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. See, if there's no leader that stands up for what's right, folks will come in and they'll preach what sells. In the absence of strong leadership, people with the money motive will enter in and pray on the flock of God. In verse 12, Paul shows his knowledge of the rowdy crowd that Titus was trying to pastor. He writes, Of them, a prophet of their own said, and here Paul quotes their fellow Cretan, Epimenides. He said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Apparently Paul agreed with him. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. The Cretans had a shameful reputation. They were antagonistic. And thus they needed a sharp rebuke from their pastor. This is why I say difficult people require strong leadership. It's interesting that Paul both knew and had read the Greek classics. Epimenides wrote in 659 B.C., some 700 years before Paul. And it's interesting that Paul was familiar with his work. 
Obviously, Paul saw great value in educating himself in the culture and in the thought of the folks that he wanted to reach. But in verse 14, Titus is not to give heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. It's interesting, Paul was aware of what Epimenides had written, but he didn't take his cues from either Greek philosophy or from Jewish fable. He was true to God's word. He tells Titus to follow God's truth, not the speculation of men, whether Greek or Jew. Paul says in verse 15, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. See, all too often, we determine what's right and wrong by how activities have been labeled by others. The group says it's wrong, and so we assume that it must be wrong. But labels don't always work to define right and wrong. Right or wrong depends more on the heart of the person involved. Take, for example, a church square dance. Let's say we had a great plan a square dance this coming Friday night. Is it good or is it evil? Well, it depends. If your heart is full of love for God and love for others, then it can be some really fun fellowship, a great church square dance. But if there's lust in your heart, then dancing around the church with the opposite sex can be an opportunity for evil. You see, a pure heart is what would keep the activity pure, but an evil heart is what would turn that same activity into something actually evil. Good and evil often depend on our attitude. In verse 16, Paul warns of people who profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Now here's the poster child for difficult church members. It's the hypocrite. It's the guy who professes to know God, but his works deny him. He talks a good talk, but his actions speak so loud you can't hear a word that he says. Chapter 2, Paul writes, But as for you, Titus, Speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. And in these next few verses, Paul will exhort the church to act like a family. And he points to four groups of people who make up every church, and he gives instructions to each group. Older men. That's his first topic. Older men need to be sober, not tipsy, not buzzed. They need to be sober. They need to be reverent. In other words, they need to take the things of God seriously. They need to be temperate, moderate in their habits, sound in faith, in love, in patience. They need to be examples to the younger men. Verse 3 addresses the older women likewise. Well, he's dealing with older folks, isn't he? Let me give you a brand new list of ways that you know that you're getting older. When your kids study things in history, you studied in current events. When you get out of the shower and you're glad the mirror's fogged up. When you go to the barber and he asks, why? Why? When you find TV ads for hemorrhoidal cream, interesting. 
When your kids try to count the candles on your birthday cake, but they're driven back by the heat. (laughs) When the phrase, getting a little action, means your prune juice is working. (laughs) Sorry about that. And if you're picking up items on the floor and you ask, is there anything else I can do while I'm down here? That's how you know you're getting older. Did you realize that older people are really one of the greatest forces for good in the church? The older folks, they have wisdom and they have free time and they have experience that the rest of us can use. You notice I just excluded myself from the category of older folks. The older people, they've often retired from employment. But understand this, there's no such thing as retirement from spiritual service. No such thing. I've heard some older folks make the comment, well, I served when my kids were younger. Now it's somebody else's turn. That's not a godly attitude. We should appreciate the older saints, and they should eagerly want to serve and continue to make a contribution to the body of Christ. Paul tells Titus to exhort the older women that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or or gossips, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women. See, it's the older women's job to teach the younger women. And here is where too many churches have set their pastor up for failure for not taking this command seriously. Titus 2, verses 2 and 3. You see, when a pastor counsels a young lady on an ongoing basis, dangerous dynamics are set in motion. The needy woman, she sees the pastor as her hero. And she may develop an attraction. Well, the pastor, he he likes being needed and appreciated, even idolized perhaps. And you know where all this is going. This is why the older women, not the pastors, should be the ones discipling the younger women. Our pastors will talk to a woman once, maybe twice, but if it's going to be an ongoing counseling situation, we'll refer the young lady to one of the older women in the fellowship. And to the older ladies, they need to teach the younger ladies to love their husbands, to love their children. You know, when a woman first gets married, she thinks that both will come naturally. (laughs) But not so. Not when the husband gets old and fat. And not when the kids become teenagers. That's why she's got to learn to love her family. Not simply as she wants to love them, but as they need to be loved. The younger women also need to be discreet or appropriate, both in their conduct and in their conversation. Younger women need to learn when to take initiative and when to wait on their husband, when to make a comment, when to stay silent. And they need to be chaste. This is also on Paul's list. It means purity in mind and in heart. The younger women should also be taught to be homemakers. Once a little boy was asked if his family said a prayer before dinner. He replied, nah, we don't have to. My mom's a really good cook. Ladies, are you a good homemaker? The Greek word means a keeper or a guardian of the home. Paul wants to make sure that the younger women 
order their lives in a way that puts them in a position to oversee and manage the affairs of their family. If dad is the CEO, mom is the office manager. It's the mama bird who needs to be in charge of the nest. This doesn't mean that a woman can't venture out of the house to earn some money for her family. No more than it means that the husband, whose primary duty is to provide for the family, can't pitch in and help the wife clean and manage the home. Marriage is certainly a team sport. I thought I would have got more amens for that, but maybe not. Marriage is certainly a team sport. You know, we learn in Proverbs 31 that the virtuous woman, she's a mother, but she's also known as a successful business person. But what this does mean is that no matter how industrious, how ambitious a woman might be, her chief assignment is to manage a peaceful and an orderly home. And we need to all realize that home is the most important place on the planet. Did you know that home is where life makes up its mind? Home is the family's refuge. It's our sanctuary A stable home makes for stable kids and a steady husband. A lady who neglects her home and allows chaos to rule is out of God's will. Family should be her priority. It's the older Christian ladies, not Pinterest, not Martha Stewart, but it's the older women of the church who should teach the younger women to be homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be blasphemed. Did you know that when a lady refuses to submit to her husband's leadership, it casts a cloud of doubt over God's word? He says, teach them to be obedient to their own husbands that the word of God may not be blasphemed. You see, in a marriage, God assigns roles to husbands and to wives that speak powerfully of His relationship with His church. I didn't come up with this. God is the one who assigned these roles. And how thoroughly we're absorbed or how thoroughly we absorb the Christian way of life is reflected in our attitude toward these roles and how we conduct ourselves in our marriage. Here's the big question for you ladies tonight. If little green Martians landed in your backyard and they came out of the spacecraft with their little antennas and all and they walked up to your kids... And they said, take me to your leader. Would your kids take them to mom or to dad? A godly wife. Oh, there were no amens for that, were there? A godly wife will encourage her husband to lead. Verse 6 says, likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. Young men need to be clear thinkers. Men, if you want your wife to follow you and trust your decisions, you can't be impulsive and driven by your emotions and hot-headed. you got to be level-headed and make good decisions. Whatever the decision, a young man needs to aim carefully before he pulls the trigger. I love the carpenter's rule. Measure twice, cut once. I hope that's how you approach all your decisions. The young man's list continues. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. You see, young men need to develop a good track record. They'll later build on the strength of their reputation. That's why they need a good reputation. 
They need a pattern of good works. And such a pattern will include in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. The measure of a man's integrity is the gap between what he believes and how he actually lives. You should just think about it one day. How big of a gap is there between what I believe and how I actually live? And here's the better question. Is that gap shrinking? That would be good. Or is that gap broadening? That would be bad. Every young man wants to be respected, but the wise man works on his integrity. That's what will earn him respect. Verse 9, exhort servants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things. And what was true of servants in the Roman Empire is true of employees today. Let this exemplary lifestyle begin with your work. And he tells us how to be a good employee. Not answering back. I mean, when your boss tells you something, don't be a smart aleck. Don't be insubordinate. Respect the authority. Don't buck it. Verse 10, not pilfering. You know, statistics show that American businesses lose $13 billion every year to shoplifting. But did you know that employee theft costs far more? An astronomical $50 billion is lost through employee theft. Pilfering costs us four times as much as outright thievery. One out of every 11 Americans is guilty of shoplifting. Three out of four have stolen from their employer. Just because you're not paid what you think you deserve doesn't entitle you to self-appointed perks and favors. You need to go home and take back all those pins and stationery. Taking what doesn't belong to you is stealing. Instead, employees should show all good fidelity. They should be honest. They should be up front. That, and I love this, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. Is your conduct adorning your doctrine? You know, every year the ladies of Calvary Chapel, they have a Christmas tea. And if you come to the tea, you'll realize that our ladies have mastered the art of frou-frou. I'm starting to think that decorating is a spiritual gift here at Calvary Chapel. I mean, our ladies have the ability to jazz up a table. They have the ability to put some pizzazz on a platform. It's amazing to me what they do. At the tea, they adorn the doctrine. But we all can adorn the doctrine of God's truth. We can give the gospel color and texture and beauty and pizzazz. How? By living godly lives that back up what we preach. Well, verse 11 through 14 are powerful verses. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Grace has appeared. Like a surprise gift, God's grace appeared suddenly. Certainly from mankind's perspective, there was no reason to think that God would lavish His blessings on us. Judge us, yes. 
but be gracious to us? Why? In his excellent book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey writes this, The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, and the Muslim code of law, each of these offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. You see, grace goes against the human grain. From an early age, we're measured by our performance, by what we do. But then God's grace appears. We realize it's not about what we can do. It's about what God has done for us. It's about His heart for us. God's grace will shower us with blessing and favor if we'll simply put our trust in Jesus' work on our behalf. And once we've received God's grace, it becomes our teacher. Paul writes of Professor Grace teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Grace teaches us how to live. Our world is full of ungrace, lust, not love. Love is the way that we should live our lives. Let's come out of this world and let's love one another. Grace teaches us how to live. Grace also teaches us where to look. He says, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Where should we look? We should look to heaven. We should have our eyes on a future with Jesus, not the temporary pleasures of this world. And then grace teaches us who to love. We need to love Jesus, who gave Himself for us. Love Jesus because He loved us first. That He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people, zealous for good works. You see, grace teaches us how to live where to look, who to love, and why the lift. I mean, what's the intent of this extravagant grace, this glorious salvation? I'll tell you what the intent is. It's to make for God a special tribe. To make for God a people distinct from this world. That was the whole purpose for His grace. To make us a people zealous for good works. To make us a people with a heart for God and a love for good. God's grace changes everything. Our life, our look, our love, our lift. In verse 15, Paul tells Titus to be bold and to be brave, to have some backbone, man. Speak these things, exhort, and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Chapter 3 reminds us that though God wants us distinct from the world, we still have an obligation to it. We're citizens of two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of men. And it's our job to obey both the laws of the Lord and the laws of the land. Paul tells Titus, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities. And a lack of submission to governmental authorities has the same effect as a wife's unwillingness to follow her husband. It undermines the gospel. And why is that so? I mean, how can we expect folks to submit to the authority that they can't see if we as Christians won't submit to the authorities that we can see? If we can't submit to God, how can they? 
He says, remind the church to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one. Man, the fellowship of the body of Christ should be a gossip-free zone. We need to also be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. You know, it's really hard to get the big head when you remember what you were before you came to Christ. In light of the rap sheet that Christ has expunged in your life, you need to walk in some humility, man, and show some patience to others because Jesus has obviously shown some patience to you. Verse 4, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. While we enjoy the kindness and the love of our Savior due to His mercy, not our merit. Once a former basketball star from St. John's University, he died. And at the pearly gate, he was asked if he'd done anything that might exclude him from heaven. Well, he thought for a minute and figured he had to confess. He said, once I was in a game and I took a shot at the buzzer and, you know, the ball went in the basket and St. John's won the game. But I was looking right at the clock and I saw those triple zeros just before I shot. But rather than tell the truth, I just kind of kept my mouth shut and we won the game that I knew we should have lost. The gatekeeper, he responded, ah, oh, that's no big deal. Come on in. The basketball player, he turned and he said, wow, thanks, St. Peter. The gatekeeper replied, I'm not St. Peter, I'm St. John. <laughs> Think about it, you'll get it. The truth is, is that it's not good works that save us. And it's not our evil deeds that keep us out. Salvation is determined by faith in the love of our Savior Jesus Christ. By faith in faith alone. Notice 2 verse 5, God saved us. Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Now here's what saves us. It's not what we do, but it's what Jesus did for us, and it's what the Spirit does in us. Jesus paid for our spiritual renewal. When my boys were little, they would come home so dirty that Kathy wouldn't even let them in the house. She'd make them strip down naked on the back porch and she'd squirt them down with a hose. You know, you can pull a little boy out of the mud and you can wash him off, but you can't alter his desire to get dirty. You know, most folks don't appreciate the miracle of the new birth. The Spirit hoses off the dirt, but that's just part of our salvation. That's just the beginning. The new birth includes new life. The Holy Spirit cuts out that old nature and He implants within us the new nature, the nature of Jesus that wants to love God and wants to love others. As a Christian man, I'm not only cleansed, I no longer want to get dirty. I've been given new desires. And if I do get dirty, I'm quick to repent. Verse 7 continues the thought that having been justified 
by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I love this word justified. You know what it means? It means that God treats me just as if I'd never sinned even when I do. That's because of His grace. This is a faithful saying. And these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. Titus needs to preach this message and the church needs to hear it over and over and over again. None of us is saved by good works, but we are all saved to good works. Paul tells Titus to teach these things, for they are good and profitable to men, but avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Avoid the peripheral issues, man. Stay away from the minutia. Stay focused on grace and godliness, on the things that count. He says, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. I mean, if you've got a person who always wants to argue, they're perpetually contentious, you need to reject him and eject him. You know, it's been said, a troublemaker is a person that rocks the boat then convinces everyone else there's a storm at sea. And a lot of time, a lot of people like this get into the church. Apparently, the church at Crete was full of these types. Over the years, I've realized that a true mark of spiritual maturity is the ability to identify what's important and what's not. What's worth fighting for and what's not. I love the old adage, a bulldog can whip a skunk, but is it really worth the effort? I mean, what good is it to win an argument if in the process you end up losing a brother? God hasn't called us to win arguments. He's called us to win brothers. This, though, is what the difficult person doesn't get. He delights in divisiveness. He loves to stir up arguments and over, argue over trivial things and to turn trivial things into major things, at least in his mind. Paul's remedy for such a contentious person is simple and straightforward. He says, you need to warn this guy twice. And if he doesn't change his way, then send him on his way. Paul concludes his letter with some personal notes. Verse 12. When I send Artemis to you or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, a city on the Greek mainland. For I have decided to spend the winter there Send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste that they may lack nothing. Isn't it sad how folks always pick on lawyers? I've heard it put, it's 99% of the lawyers that give the rest of them a bad name. We, we just don't want to pick on lawyers. Apparently though, here's a good lawyer, Paul's pal Zenos. He says, send him to me. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. Here's how to maintain an effective witness for Jesus. Do good works and meet urgent needs. You do that, and you'll win a great hearing in the community. And all who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. At times, all of us have to deal with Cretans. 
That's why we should remember that difficult people require loving yet strong leadership.